You're listening to The Road with Pastor Teacher Steve Holt. So whatever you're going through, you choose your attitude. You choose what you're going to believe during those times. And when you do, you become a beacon light. You become a city on a hill because people are looking for others that stand out. Francis Schaeffer spoke to this, and he said, the true Christian is the most joyful person on the face of the earth. And it's really true. At The Road, our mission is to empower people to change the world. For more information on The Road, visit theroad.org. We hope you are encouraged by today's message from pastor teacher, Steve Holt. So, as you guys know, I've been on this theme of a Kingdom of God revolution, but when we were on our, we were traveling this week, last week, I should say, to Nashville with our daughter, and God spoke to me that we are in the days of Elijah, and it was really weird, you know, I just started singing that song in my head, the days of Elijah, and, uh, and then I told Liz when we were driving, I said, I keep getting this sense that God's saying we're living in the days of of Elijah. And then Liz starts to smile like, what? And she goes, oh, and then she names these people who had already said that to her as well as the same sense that she had. So I changed everything. I shared this last week. I want to talk about living in the days of Elijah. We'll get back to kingdom revolution next week. But for this week, I feel like God's given me a special message. Now, Write down in your journals right now, 1 Chronicles 12.32. Write down 1 Chronicles 12.32. And these are called, as many of you have heard me reference this many times, the sons of Issachar, who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That's what we want at the road, men and women. We want you to understand the times and know what the church ought to do. So that was, that was a reference to the time of David, when many had forsaken David, God was raising him up to be the next king. And the sons of Issachar, if you look at the whole passage and the whole context, these were 200 leaders. It's the only one in the references there in all of the different lineages of the 12 tribes that it speaks of a particular group being leadership. God's looking for leaders who understand the times and know what America should do. And the reason is, is because in the art of war, you have to understand your enemy. Now, let me say this. What I'm about to share today is going to bother some of you. Okay, I'm going to bother you a little bit. Some of you are going to say, oh, where do you get that? What's that all about? And you're not going to understand it. I'm going to say this at the very beginning. Do your own research. Always do your own homework. Don't depend entirely on me. I'm just a man. I'm just a pastor. I'm just a preacher. But I just did the research a little ahead of you. And if you have a desire to go deeper, then go deeper. You guys go to websites. You can find all the stuff that I'm going to share with you. It'll take a little bit of work, but you can do it. But it was Sun Tzu, in his classic book, The Art of War, who said, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Let me say that again. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. The problem is most Christians don't know themselves. And secondly, most of them don't know the enemy. The reality is, before I say anything else, because you're going to, I know I'll be misunderstood and I'll get all these emails. Okay. 
and by the way, I read some of them, um, <laughs> that I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about Satan and the demonic. So I want you to, I want you to get elevated up above thinking people, thinking parties, thinking politics too much. And, and just be reminded that there's something behind these. And this is, I was at Noonday Prayer on Wednesday. And at Noonday Prayer Wednesday, we were all in there praying. And I had this image. How many remember uh, Sound of Music? Okay, remember the part in Sound of Music where Maria is doing a puppet production with all the kids before Captain Von Trapp. Remember that? Okay, and it's, and it's got the little, it's got the little shepherd, dun, 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 and all that stuff, right? And you see them uh, as the puppeteers working the puppets. And in my mind's eye, I saw the puppeteer with a black mask over, which in a typical professional puppet show, that's what the puppeteer wears. He has it black so that you don't notice him. You notice what's happening on the little stage. But I saw another puppeteer up above the puppeteer. That's God, men and women. God is actually orchestrating things. And we may think that Satan's on the move or Satan's doing something, and he is. But God's still orchestrating it. And, and he's still sovereign over the affairs of men. And so how do you know that? Well, you know that because of all the prophecies about Jesus and his second coming in the Old and New Testament. Prophecies are the greatest evidence we have of the sovereignty of God. Can you imagine, remember at Christmas when I went through all that? Like over 300 prophetic words about the coming Messiah all the way down to the details of who he'd be born from, how he'd be born, where he'd be born. God is sovereign, right? So here's what's important. This is important because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Now, let's just, let's just say this a different way. Satan will take advantage of you if you are ignorant of his schemes. I see it all the time in the body of Christ. Church people are all the time moving out in their own devices and their own inventions and their own concepts which they're not bad. They're just not what God wants them to be doing. And then they get taken advantage of because it wasn't God's will. And yet he says, we can know the devices. We can know the schemes of the enemy. So today, I want to talk about some of the schemes of the enemy, not unlike the days of Elijah. You hear what I'm saying? Not unlike the days of Elijah, because when you know the truth, the truth will set you Set you free. How many of you feel like that a lot of what you read in social media is not setting you free? How many of you in this room possibly have been censored over the last few? Oh, a lot of hands went up. Okay, good. That's a trophy. Okay, we should, we should bless them. Because what happens is, listen, they, they wouldn't be censoring you if they didn't fear you. Listen, church, if they can censor the president of the United States, they can censor you. Big tech is on the move. Big tech, write this down. Big tech is one of the prophets of Baal. Big tech is one of the prophets of Baal. Now, before everybody, I think I had 
only like a dozen people leave in the first service. Okay. <laughs> so there's a few more of you in this service. Um, paradigm shift. Write down paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. You know what a paradigm is? A paradigm is how you view reality. It's like a lens. It's like if you're uh, farsighted or nearsighted, you have glasses, and you put those glasses on, and things become clear to you. That's a paradigm. A paradigm is usually coming from the way you were raised, the kind of a family of origin that you have. And so if you saw an angry father in your home, you have a tendency probably to be tempted to become an angry father yourself. If you have an angry mother, you become an angry mother. It's a paradigm. And the only thing that happens that, that sets us free is a paradigm shift. Okay, a paradigm shift, listen, a paradigm shift is not that you think differently about something, it's that you believe differently to such a degree that it becomes a reality and a new way of looking at your situation. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm about to give you some things. Maybe for some of you, I think for many of you, it won't be different, but some of you, maybe. So hang with me. Don't leave. Hang with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably make you a little bit, some of you are going to get a little ticked at what I'm going to share. And, um, and, and so hang in there because God might be wanting to bring a paradigm shift in your life. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 16. So this is the Old Testament, 1 Kings 16. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look and cherry pick some key parts of Elijah's life. And we're going to miss a ton. We're going to have to skip around. We'll move from, uh, we'll be skipping. So I would say, go ahead and read from chapter 16 on to the end of 1 Kings if you want the whole story. I can't cover it all. I'm just going to look at some key parts that relate to days of Elijah. Now, 1 and 2 Kings, real quickly, is a, is a chronological connection to 1 and 2 Samuel. So where 2 Samuel ends, 1 Kings begins. Okay, first king, first chap, first 11 chapters are about Solomon because this quick history lesson, you know, Saul, David, Solomon, one united Israel. But as Solomon fell into sin, as he got involved in Baal worship, as he got involved with marrying all the women that he shouldn't have married, God had told him not to do that, it split the kingdom. So we're looking at Israel. Israel's the northern part of, of current Israel. As you know, it's the northern province up there, like around the Sea of Galilee, all the way coming down to probably around what Samaria. They're in the middle part of Israel today. And Ahab, Ahab is the seventh king. Okay, Ahab is the seventh king. So we're going to pick it up in 1 Kings 1629, 1 Kings 1629, and I feel like it's important you get a summation of what we're dealing with here, and where culture was at this time of Elijah. In the 38th year of Asa, or Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke 
the Lord God of Israel anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So four important facts about Ahab. Let me go through this. Number one, Ahab's the most evil king up to that time. So first of all, he's the most evil king. Second of all, why? Because he married a fanatical pagan queen named Jezebel that came out of a land and came out of a father and came out of a background of the express worship of Baal, okay? So the Canaanite god, Baal, was already in Canaan, but it was strong in Jezebel. She hates the prophets. She's slaughtering the prophets. And here's what makes it really spooky is the third thing. Third thing is, Ahab followed the sins of Jeroboam. So the sins of Jeroboam are this, that he took all the high places in Israel and he put altars in all those high places. But not just that, you guys. He raised up Jeroboam and Ahab and Jezebel, raised up prophets and priests of Baal. Prophets and priests of Baal. So that was unique in Israel at that time, that prophets, there had always been idolatry. But the raising up of not only prophets and priests of Baal, but also every high place. That's what the historians say, is that every high place had an altar to Baal. And then fourthly, Ahab built a wooden image to Asherah, the Canaanite goddess. The wife of Baal is what some legends believe. They saw her as like a wife of Baal. Now, here's what's important. Baal, and I could go, I've got tons of notes here, but I'm just going to hit a few things. The three major gods, write this down now, the three major gods that Israel always struggle with, and I'm going to tell you, I believe we're struggling with in America today in the fourth dimension. They're empowering what's happening in the evil ways that are affecting especially our children our country are Baal, Asherah, and Molech. Baal, Asherah, and Molech. They, they continually battle. Here's why. They're all linked together. Basically, they're, simil they're similar, but they're different. No need to go into the detail here, but here's the thing you got to remember. They're all fertility gods. They're all fertility gods. Not just fertility as it relates to, say, having children, but fertility as it relates to nature, especially Baal. Baal was known as a nature god. He was known as the thunder god, the rainstorm god, the god that brought rain and created fertility on the earth. In other words, farmers at that time, which would have been a huge part of Israel, the agrarian uh, culture that they were in, they worshiped Baal for rain, for storms to come because it would water their crops and it would give uh, nature fertility. Asherah, dealing more with, uh, with birthing and with childbirthing in that aspect, as well as Molech would be similar. Now, here's the important part I don't want you to miss. That in all of the worship of Baal, Molech, and Asherah was child sacrifice. Child sacrifice, usually thrusting the baby into a fire and burning them up or putting them on an altar and slaying them. And, don't miss this, child prostitution. So child prostitution involved with child sacrifice characterized all three. I want to show you a map. This is a map of Washington, D.C. And if you look at that closely on the red lines, and I would just say, Liz was reminding me, you don't even need the red lines. So you could go and get an aerial photo of our capital without these red lines, and you would see it. And it is the image of an owl. Image of an owl. 
owl is the main symbol of the spirit or the god, small g, of course, the god of Molech, child sacrifice, pedophilia, the, the sacrifice of children to their death, the killing of children is the spirit of Molech. So if you took the lines that were up there, you took it off and you looked at it from an area of you, you'll see it. You'll see the eyes, you'll see the wings and all that's involved. Now, here's what makes this really spooky is that when the emails of certain leaders were revealed four years ago and then subsequent on from that, the name Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H or Molech was all through the emails. There is a spirit of Molech in the elite of our nation. And if you're following it all, you know there's a constant revealing of pedophilia, child prostitution, and stuff. You, you know about Epstein and his island. Well, there's owls. That symbol of Molech is all over that island. So men and women, we need to know who the enemy is. And the spirit of Molech is in our land. The spirit of Baal is in our land. I want you to look at this next photograph. This is from New York City. And this is the temple of Baal erected in New York City just in 2016. So in 2016, they took the gate of the archaeological ruins that we have of the temple of Baal, and it was erected in New York City. And it was there that Jonathan Kahn said this. He was there. Jonathan Kahn was at the ceremony. He said, if America is following in the footsteps of ancient Israel, away from God and into judgment, which I believe they are, could there be a link to Baal? Of course, no one in America would admit to worshiping Baal. But the truth is, American culture is filled with other gods and idols like Baal. And when a civilization turns away from God, it always ends up bringing the other gods into their places. And then I want to show you another photograph, and this is a replica of the gate to Baal in Washington, D.C. Um, in 2018. That was, that's not erected there. It was just there for a time period during Cultural Heritage Week. Men and women, at the centerpiece in America, at the centerpiece, at the core of America, is a desire to destroy our children. A desire to destroy their innocence, take their lives, and ruin them. And that is demonic, and that is wrong. And that is why anytime you start, I dare say those that raise their hands, and there were, I don't know, half a dozen that raised their hands about being censored. When you start to move into any of this kind of stuff, they notice it. Because they know that you're beginning to understand where the power comes from. The power of the spirit of Baal, Asherah, and Molech is in our land. And I'm going to tell you, if we don't deal with it the way God raised up Elijah to deal with it, we're in big, big trouble. And guess what? At this church, we're going to deal with it that way. We're going to come with truth that sets us free. We're not going to walk in fear. We're going to walk in joy. We're going to walk in, in, the, in, the, in the fruit of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. Amen. That's exactly right. So now... Turn to uh, chapter 17. So you're already in 16. So just go to chapter 17 and look at Elijah. And, and in your notes, write up, God always raises up wild prophets. God always raises up wild prophets. He loves wild prophets. Some of you in this room are wild prophets. 
And Elijah the Tishbite, Tishbite, he's not Jewish. Isn't that interesting? He's not even Jewish. He's a Gentile called by God to the Jewish nation. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, way up in the northern province, said to Ahab. So he goes to Ahab. All this stuff's going on. This is the kind of guy he has got Baal worship everywhere. He goes to Ahab, and this is what he said. As the Lord God of Israel lives. Now, let me tell you why that's important. So when I was studying the Talmud in reference to Ahab, listen to this. Talmudic, Talmudic literature says that Ahab wrote on all the doors of the city gates in Samaria, Ahab hath renounced the living God of Israel. And this is how he starts off. So you don't know that history. It's like, oh, what? okay, well, you just said that. No, he's actually, he's, he's probably been to Samaria. He's seen this temple. He's seen the gates of Samaria and written on the gates. It's a Talmud tradition says, Ahab hath renounced the living God of Israel. Now think about that just for a second. Ahab hath renounced the living God of Israel. The dude's an idiot. I mean, that's about as idiotic as you can get. It's one thing to renounce something you don't think is living, but he's renouncing? And he even has it on the gates all over Samaria, history tells us? The living God of Israel? They would have known at this time, parted like this kind of thing called the Red Sea. You know, signs and wonders against Pharaoh in Egypt. So the guy's not playing with a full deck. So then Ahab comes and he says what he says, possibly because he's read about it right there on the gates. As the Lord God of Israel lives, we could put parenthetic, like you have written on all your gates, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain all these years except by my word. Remember, this is the fertility God of nature. He's coming against Baal. He's called the storm God. He's the one who pours forth rain that brings fertility to the earth. He comes and he says, there's not going to be any rain. So if you, you couldn't have had a more affrontive message to Baal than to come right against the thing that he's esteemed for. Here's number one. Here's my first point. For the church today, like Elijah, the true church can speak for God with authority. The true church can speak for God with authority. Last week, I talked about what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, ecclesia. The idea of ecclesia is the assembly. It's the assembly of the saints coming together. Men and women, every time you come to the road, you're going to get something. Even if you come and you're bitter in your soul or you're jealous or you're struggling with your marriage or you're going through bankruptcy, I don't care what it is, you come here. You gather together with the church, God's probably going to download something in your heart that you need to hear because we are the ecclesia. And it's supernatural that when we come together as an assembly, God gives you strategies, God gives you wisdom. Liz and I have business on the side that we do with real estate. And when we do stuff, we seek God. Usually we fast and pray, and we do not make a move on anything with our finances without a word 
from the Lord because we're the ecclesia. And God's got a plan for our finances and God's got a plan for your finances and God's got a plan for your future. But if you don't seek him, you can miss it. You can miss it. I'd say most people are missing it. When we look at how depressed and defeated the church is in general in America, because we don't seek him. But God's given you authority. You guys, you have power and authority. Listen to the message from last week if you weren't here. You're the ecclesia. Right now, even as I speak, Pastor Al, Pastor Vince are back in a room with uh, potential 242 community group leaders, and they're strategizing how to have house churches all over the city. So if they come and they shut us down, if the government comes and shuts us down, we're ready, man. Man, we're working on strategies. That's what the ecclesia does. And we speak with authority. We're the only ones who can speak for God. Your elementary school teacher doesn't speak for God. Listen to this. The kingdom of God does not come on Air Force One. I just want to give you some new news. The, the, the kingdom of God does not come on Air Force One. And listen, you guys, but the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. There is a mighty move of God. Every person I've shared with in the last two weeks out in the community, just different opportunities to share, is open. Some of you are here for the first time. You haven't been to church in a long time, maybe never been to church. You're hungry for truth because you're sick and tired of the lies you keep getting fed in the news and on the media because they're prophets of Baal. You've come to a house where I pray we speak for God, not perfectly, but as best we know how as human beings, as his image bearers. Peter said this, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone to ask you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you guys, we're planning a worldview conference. We'll start announcing it probably next week in March. And we're going to have a great lineup, an all-star lineup. Because as when we had Jeff here speaking several weeks ago, Jeff Myers from Summit. If you don't have a worldview that's biblical... If you don't have a Christian worldview, it's really hard to filter the lies that are coming your way. And so we want to train and equip you in that. We're starting Empower You. In the next six months, we'll launch that. If we have the finances, we want to launch Empower You. Empower You. How many know Prager You? Okay, Prager You. It's going to be a Christian version of Prager You. And we're going to develop that. And my hope and prayer is that over the next five years, it could be the most viewed Christian website in the world. Why not? Why can't we believe that God would send people there with questions like, who is God? How does, why does, if God is loving, why does he allow evil? Apologetics, Christian history, biblical theology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We begin to develop these categories with 15-minute vignettes that we would develop because we speak with authority. It, it, the closer we are to, listen guys, the closer you are as a family to this book, the more authority you have. The more you get out on your own opinions, the less authority you have. So I don't want to argue opinions, do you? 
let's, let's debate, let's be in the world of the debate as it relates to truth and falsehood. And one of the things, you know, like this guy that was in my house recently, I was sh- sharing with him, and I think he was sharing with me more than I was sharing with him because he had an opinion on everything, okay? And I said, man, you have a lot of opinions. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, some people don't like to hear my opinions, but I got them. And he was really proud of how many opinions he had. And I said, that's amazing. How do you keep up with them? Do you have them in alphabetical order? I mean, what do you do with all your opinions? And I said, you know what? I'm so sick of opinions. I'm not sick of yours. They're fine, but I'm kind of sick of opinions. Do you ever get sick of opinions? Yeah. I said, well, me too. Wouldn't you want to know the truth? And he said, yeah. I said, the truth that sets you free? And he knew where I was starting to go, and he wasn't sure how to answer that. And I said, no, you need the truth that sets you free. Because here's the deal, men and women. We don't need to be defensive, but we need to know how to defend. Do you guys know the difference? Here's what defensive is. Defensive is you get red in the face, you start stammering, and you don't know what you're talking about. That's being defensive. That's 90% of the Christians out there. But one who knows how to defend is someone who has a smile on their face, joy in their heart, because they know what they believe and they know how to communicate it. And the only way for that to happen is get trained. Get trained and equipped. That's what we're going to do with that Worldview Conference. It's going to be exciting. Now, look at chapter 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. So this guy is really, really amazing. And so here's here's this person who's kind of a remnant. That's the only way I can describe him. He's this remnant of the body of Christ that, yes, he's giving lip service and he's a servant of Ahab, but actually secretly he's doing stuff behind his back because he fears God, not Baal. So here's the second point. Jot this down. Like in the time of Elijah, the true church is a courageous remnant that will not bow down. The true church is a courageous remnant that will not bow down. So men and women, though we have a mainstream Marxist media, don't be fearful. They should fear you. They fear us. We don't fear them because it's full of lies. It's a pocket full of lies. That's what it is. You hear what I'm saying? And so, and so the reality and what's exciting is when you hear a falsehood and you can recognize it because you've got this filter there, your paradigm understands what's going on, you don't have to get all flustered and worried and, and not get sleep at night, which many of us do. I do sometimes too. Nobody's perfect in this. But I will say this, what gives me comfort is to get away, go into my study, or go into a corner of my room, or put on a fire, or make a fire, and just open God's Word and start reading. Just open God's Word and start reading. Read the Bible in a year. Read the whole Bible in a year. Get your journal out. Write down what God's saying to you, and you walk in victory no matter what happens in this world. Because you are not a good witness if you're always going to be frustrated and uptight and depressed. 
but you're going to be a great witness if you're joyful in the midst of all kinds of confusion. Because guess what? People are looking for people like you. They want to see confident people. They want to see joyful people. They want to see you unafraid. So God raises up a remnant. It was a courageous remnant of, that, that hid the Jews under Hitler. It was a courageous remnant of pastors who stood against Hitler during World War II. It was a courageous remnant of midwives that stood against Pharaoh's order to kill the children. And Moses was born. It was a courageous group of Christians in the early church that came against Herod and the, and the rabbis in Jerusalem, and they preached the gospel. God wants you joyful. I mean, Philippians is the most joyful book in the Bible, and he's in prison. He's in prison, and he's full of joy because, as Viktor Frankl said so well, the last freedom of man is to choose your own attitude. And as he was in that concentration camp for all those years, and the SS did what they did, and those guards did what they did, he found joy there and peace there. And he wasn't even a believer. He was a Jewish, well, maybe he was, but as far as we know, he wasn't a Christian. But he, he discovered that they could not take his heart away. They could take his physical freedom away, but they could not take his spiritual freedom away. So whatever you're going through, you choose your attitude. You choose what you're going to believe during those times. And when you do, you become a beacon light. You become a city on a hill because people are looking for others that stand out. Francis Schaeffer spoke to this, and he said, The true Christian is the most joyful person on the face of the earth. And it's really true. Well, here's what happens next. I'll just kind of explain it because of time. We don't have time to go into every detail. But Obadiah meets Elijah in a field somewhere. Elijah says, hey, go tell that rascal Ahab to come meet me. And Obadiah goes, no, I'm not going to do that because I know what you'll do. You'll, you'll say you're going to be here and then God's spirit's going to lift you out of here. You're not going to be here when he comes here and he's going to kill me. So Obadiah feared God a little bit. He wasn't perfect, Okay. But now we pick up the story in verse 15. So look at verse 15, chapter 18. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. And Obadiah said, okay, Obadiah, I make a promise to you. I will be here. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, told him. Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? How blessed it would be, men and women, if they said of the church in America, we trouble everybody. Yeah, the troubler of America is here, the church. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You, you and your house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went for all the children of Israel gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Number three. Number three. Like Elijah, 
The true church will be fearless in declaring truth. The true church will be fearless in declaring truth. I mean, this is amazing. Elijah is fearless against Ahab. And he already knows that Jezebel has all of the prophets and all the priests of both Baal and Asherah in her hip pocket. And they're killing the prophets of the Lord. And yet he comes, he meets with Ahab, and he speaks truth to him. Write this down. The church is the contra mundum. The church is the contra mundum. C-O-N-T-R-A, contra mundum. What that means is the church, the true church is always against the world. We're always against culture in one sense, and we're for culture in another sense. We're for culture in this sense that all people within culture are made in the image of God and we love them. We're against culture in that culture tends to be taken over by darkness. And so we have to stand against and for the culture. Francis Schaeffer once said, the true Christian is not only to teach but to practice truth in the midst of relativism. And this will bring forth confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation. Many women, when I read this, when I read verse 21, I felt like that was a word to the church in America. Choose who you're going to follow. I believe that the church in America is at a crossroads. Comfortable Christianity is dead. Now, a lot of pastors don't know that, but it is. Okay? The kind of fearless Christianity that God is raising up in the days of Elijah is the only one that will last. It's the only one that will bring a kingdom of God revolution in our time. You guys are the priests, prophets, and kings of that. God has raised you up here at the road, and there's other great churches here in town, that we are going to be used by God to be fearless and to walk forth with joy in our hearts. That's why we need each other. That's why we believe so much in 242 community groups is because we really need blood-stained allies. If you don't have blood-stained allies, you will not last. If you're out there on your own, if you're not involved in a church anywhere, you will not last. You'll not be walking with joy, power, and anointing with God a year from now. You will not. That's how much the darkness is moving in. We really need each other. And when you come here, you should come every week expecting revelation from God. And here's what I love. So many of you, probably a couple hundred of you are here early, 15 minutes before the service, and you're scattered all over in your seats. I know you're saving seats, so that's okay too. But you're saving seats. But you're also, usually you're sitting there in your chair with the word open while the team practices or things that are happening in here. And you're getting ready for the service. You're getting pumped. And you guys know that I was an athlete. And as a gymnast, you know, we warm up. Gymnasts warm up. And we stretch for almost an hour before we do our routines on the bars and stuff. And so you're stretching. So some of you come, you're you're getting your your pre-contest or pre-competition warm up. You know, you're in here and you're getting ready. Skip down to verse 25. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first for, for you are many. So he's got not what, he's got 850 prophets he's facing. Prophets of Baal and probably the prophets of Asher are also there. And so it was at noon, verse 27, that Elijah mocked them. He said, why don't you just cry out to your God 
Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awake. Now, here's what's exciting about this. And this he's really mocking him, mocking them. There is power in satanic oppression. There is power. You don't mock the devil. But there is a confidence that God gives us usually in prayer where God will give you such an overwhelming sense through the power of the Holy Spirit that there may be times where you literally take on the devil or you take on a spirit because God's called you to do that. And in this case, Elijah is called into that. I believe a whole church can do this from time to time. So verse 28, they cried out aloud. They cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed down out of them. Have you ever just, have you ever noticed how other religions are so into blood? And that in Christianity, we believe the shed blood of Christ gives us redemption. Blood's important. That's the power of behind child sacrifice. That's the power behind abortion. You say, well, why, why do we allow that? Why does that happen? I truly believe when you study, especially Baal, Molech, and Asherah, that, that the prophets believed, and I believe the elite maybe in our country believe that there's power in child sacrifice and there's power in satanic worship. And I believe there is. But we have a greater power. And that's what's about to happen here. This is a power encounter. Jump down to verse 29. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering for the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one even paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord. So they've been cutting themselves, jumping around, screaming out, nothing's happened. Then with these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, verse 32. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water. These are 50-gallon water pots. 50-gallon water pots with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Verse 35. So the water ran all around the altar. He also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Here's what's amazing to me about this whole situation is that Elijah's so convinced. He has such confidence that God's going to show up that he just really wants to hammer home his point. So you get these 50, I mean, this is during a drought, you guys. The rain hasn't come yet. It's during a famine. He makes them take 50 gallons of water. I mean, that's like gold at that time and just pour it out on the altar. I mean, you have, to, you have to believe there was a lot of arguing, there was a lot of punching, there was a lot of pushing, there was a lot of people saying, this guy's a lunatic, he's crazy, it'll never happen, and we're wasting all our water. That's the situation. Now, Elijah calls out, verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God 
that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones. I mean, it even consumed the sun. That's pretty hot, okay? The stones and the dust, it licked up the water that was in a trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So remember, the first time he said it, nobody said anything. Hey, who are you going to serve, God or Baal? Nobody says anything. Now they see the power of God coming down. Everything changes. They all want to sign on the dotted line. I'm on the team. I'm on, give me the Jesus shirt. I want the Jesus shirt, you know. Fourth point, don't miss this. Like Elijah, the church will be a people on fire for God. We have to be on fire for God, men and women. If you are not on fire for God, every rainstorm that comes your way is going to wipe you out. You're going to constantly walk in depression and be wiped out. God wants us on fire for God. And guess where it begins? It begins in your marriage and in your family. I want to challenge you. I'm going to talk about this at the couples conference. Liz and I are going to share about how to keep your marriage on fire for God and on fire for each other. There's a lot of marriage coverage about how to be on fire for each other, but I, here's, my, here's my thesis. You can't be on fire for each other that will last if you're not on fire for God that will last. Because when you're on fire for Him together, God gives you a love and a fire for each other that is inexplainable. It's just exciting. And so we need a people on fire. Listen to this prophecy. Last, don't miss this, last two verses of the Old Testament. Last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi. This is what it says. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Wouldn't you say that the major way in which the prophets of Baal the gods of Molech and Asher are attacking our nation is the family, trying to wreck your family, trying to wreck your marriage. And some of you are in your second marriage and, and you felt like you found the love of your life and now that's a struggle because the enemy just keeps coming. He keeps coming. You got to get on fire for God. You got to find him, spend time in his word. God, get me on fire for you. God, get me on fire for you and cry out and spend time in his word and watch what he'll do. And then lastly, verse 41, then Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance rain. I love this. I wish I had more time to talk about it. He hears the sound of rain, and men and women, there's no rain. How many of you sense that God is moving in our land? Raise your hand. So we see some evidence of it, but it's only a trickle to, to compare with what's coming. Actually, that's what Sean's message was. That's what Sean said in the 42 cities that he went to. He said, revival's coming, revival's coming. He has a song about revival's coming because he could sense it. Many of us sense that. Almost every hand in the room went up. You sense it. So sometimes you sense something before it actually happens. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went up on the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground. He put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and he looked out. He said, there's nothing. I don't see anything. Seven times. He said, go again, go again, go again. 
And if you read the rest of the story, the servant finally sees this, this little cloud like the fist of a man coming up out of the Mediterranean Sea. And then Elijah turns and, and starts running. He says, rain's coming, rain's coming, rain's coming. Last point. Like Elijah, the church will be a, will be a church that wars in believing prayer. We are called to be a church that wars in believing prayer. Not just prayer. How many of you have been in boring prayer meetings? The church majors in boring prayer meetings. It's part, of the, it's part of the MO of pastors. Would you please once a week lead a boring prayer meeting? Okay, I am not into boring prayer meetings. And I say, if we have any boring prayer meetings, we ought to just end them early and say, you guys go home and do something better. We need warring prayer meetings. We need war rooms. And that's why we're on like 128th day of noonday prayer, 128 straight days of noonday prayer because we're believing God for him to work. And sometimes it takes seven times. Sometimes it takes seven times to see God bring a healing or to bring a breakthrough in one's life. You've been listening to The Road with pastor teacher Steve Holt. We hope you have been blessed by today's message. To connect with us further, visit theroad.org. If you are walking through a difficult time, we want to pray for you. Go to theroad.org, click on the Ministries tab, and go to our prayer page to send us your prayer request. Thanks again for tuning in today, and be sure to listen to the next edition of The Road with Pastor Teacher Steve Holt.